joy, peace, tranquility, vibrancy, and wellness. Isn't this what you want instead of constant stress? That's what host Rochelle Lawson is going to help you with on Blissful Living. There are many ways to reduce stress, some you may not even know about. Doesn't a little peace and tranquility sound like just what you've been looking for? Relax for a few minutes with Rochelle. She's the queen of feeling fabulous. Hello and welcome to another hour of Blissful Living. I am Rochelle Lawson, the queen of feeling fabulous, and I am your host for today's show. And today we offer something just a little bit different to help you transition into the new year and live a life of bliss with reduced stress and overwhelm. And my guest comes to us with a vast amount of credentials. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Today's guest is Dr. Alex Lickerman, and he's a physician, a former assistant professor of medicine and director of primary care at the University of Chicago, and current assistant vice president for the student health and counseling services at the University of Chicago. So as you can tell, health is his 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 game for sure. Um, he is also practicing, is also a practicing, I'm not sure how to say this, but Nishirian Buddhist and leader in that um, particular organization. So Dr. Lickerman is a prolific writer. Um, he's contributed to medical textbooks, national trade publications, and even for Hollywood with an adaptation of Milton's Paradise. Milton's Paradise Lost. He has spoken at many high school, colleges, and medical conferences, and it is my esteemed pleasure to welcome him to the Blissful Living Show today. Welcome, Dr. Lickerman. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us, um, you know, hold up, audience. You know, I always like to just prep my audience or the listeners um, just in case there's so many bits of golden information that you're going to disseminate upon them. I don't want them to miss out on anything. So, listeners, you know I like to prep you guys. So, if you have not already done so, find a comfortable spot to sit back and relax to listen to the show, grab your favorite beverage, grab a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, something to write with, because I'm sure you are going to want to take prolific notes as to what Dr. Lickerman is going to lay down on us today. So now that I've prepped the audience for your vast amount of information you're going to be providing to us, let's just jump in. I'm I'm so curious to find out more about um, about you. Now you I know you have um, Dr. Lickerman. I know you have a new book. Is it a new book that's out called The Unde- Undefeated Mind? Yes, or, just oh, came out in November. Tell us a little bit about what's in that book. So uh, the the full title is The Undefeated Mind. The subtitle is On the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self. Essentially, I wrote this book because I found myself having the same types of conversations over and over and over with my patients about what they could do to endure their illness better. And um, there, there really is an astounding amount of research out there that almost no one knows about that directly leads to things people can do themselves, whether they want to be Buddhist or not, doesn't matter, that will actually enable them to in- increase their resilience, meaning improve their ability to withstand discouragement when obstacles arise on mm-hmm. their way to goal pursuit and to withstand adversity better, not just to survive it, but to even thrive in it. Oh, that's fabulous. I know um, a lot of people, a lot of stress, you know, stress-related illnesses and disease, but also a lot of stress and anxiety and worry comes from people not, you know, not really knowing what to expect and how to handle resilience and how that can, you know, really potentiate, help them to live better, longer, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's it's great that you've put this into a book that people can, you know, go to and um, indulge in and, and find out how they can be more resilient themselves just by, you know, doing what you do or doing what you teach without having to become a Buddhist. Yeah. I, I've always just been really struck by how different um, people will handle different problems differently. And I've, I've literally had 
people who who have had runny noses that just made their worlds fall apart, as silly as that sounds. And other people who've had, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, other people who've had terminal cancer diagnosed and were just completely calm and courageous and handled it with unbelievable poise. Right. And I have always been just really struck uh, by the by that fact and wondered, you know, are people just born this way or are there things that, that they can do to improve their strength? And the answer seems to be both. And so that's what I wanted to, I wanted to sort of get across, the very specific things anyone can do to make themselves stronger. You know, that's interesting because I, I can totally relate to what you're saying, being a healthcare provider myself, and I have seen, you know, people come in with the most minute things, a paper cut, and their world is falling apart. Yeah. You know, and then, like you said, someone that has just been given the diagnosis of some kind of terminal illness, and they're just as calm and serene and just seem, you know, you know, very peaceful, and they're handling it, you know, with great resi- resilience, so to speak. And a lot of times those people sometimes um, are able, I guess, to shift what's going on and, and actually the terminal diagnosis either gets, you know, they get prolonged life or things turn around from them and I, for them. And I think sometimes it's just a matter of our mindset and how we deal with stuff. Well, it's all about how we think about things. So, you know, events themselves are neither good nor bad, but uh, we, we put those judgments and labels on them. And uh, we often do it so unconsciously we don't realize that we ourselves are doing it. And we believe the labels that we put on things, and that belief often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's not that we're always wrong. I mean, some things that happen really are bad, but that doesn't mean the outcome will only be bad or that even if it is a bad outcome, that we are, are destined and doomed to suffer as a result of it. There's a lot we can actually do. Right. Now, you guys, Dr. Lickerman is a medical physician. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a medical physician. He treats patients. He sees patients. He has a, a vast amount of experience in dealing with patients. Patients come to him, you know, with all, all kinds of things. And so he's coming to you guys from a medical perspective, but also from um, a perspective of wisdom that has been instilled him, with him, within him with regards to Buddhism. And he's, he incorporates, what I'm getting from him is that he incorporates that into his work in dealing with his patients to help them have better resilience and to, to be able to handle things a lot better with regards to whatever medical challenges they may be facing. And with regards to that, Dr. Dr. Lickerman, can you tell us a little bit about um, how someone that, doesn't necessarily see themselves as a resilient person. How is there a way that they could possibly increase their resiliency? There's many ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you were going to say that, so that's I kind of opened it up just a little bit for us to dwell into it deeply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this really is, as we said, what the book is about, and I divided sort of into nine principles, and, and I organized these principles around uh, principles from Buddhism, but importantly for me was to support these ideas with science. And uh, what was astounding to me as I was doing the research for this book was just how much the the really recent research is supporting uh, ideas from Buddhism that are, you know, 2,500 years old. Uh, But also sort of pointing the way where, even if you're not interested in practicing Buddhism, you can leverage this research in a way that make it work for you. And, And I should say that, you know, my goal in drawing on both traditions, sort of the the Buddhist tradition and the scientific tradition, <laughs> is that I think there, uh, in some ways, sometimes the science takes a while to catch up. You know, Buddhist mm-hmm. practitioners came up with a lot of these, the, the pearls of wisdom that have served people for the last 2500 years, but only recently has science sort of, you know, empirically and systematically studied it and, and sort of pointed out where which things really work, which things maybe are not so helpful and, and uh, um, my, my basic uh, approach to all these things is as a scientific thinker. You know, there's a lot about Buddhism that I don't believe because it has, I've not seen evidence to show me that it's true, uh-huh. but a lot that I have and a lot that's very valuable. So, you know, I find it interesting um, because I, I practice um, Eastern medicine. I'm, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner as well as a registered nurse. And, you know, um, putting in context some of the things that go along with Eastern you know, the Eastern way of thinking, whether it's, you know, Ayurvedic sages, wisdom, or, you know, the wisdom of Buddha and the Buddhism. I, I mean, I, I find it very compelling and very helpful, but I'm like you in some aspects with regards to, you know, the scientific part of my mind wants to, 
you know, have a hypothesis and go through the whole scientific process to prove, you know, to prove it is actually real and, you know, beneficial and things. But then the other part of my mind is like, just go with the flow, Rochelle, and see how it evolves. And, you know, whatever journey you're supposed to be taking during this period of time is the teachings that you're supposed to get during this journey to help you, you know, prolong life and go forward. And so I have this, you know, kind of balance, I want to say boomeranging back and forth between science and, you know, and the way Eastern medicine um, approaches things. And it, and it does become quite interesting um, when you try to tie the two of them together. You, sometimes you can just get lost in the context of, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm stuck now. And you don't know which way to turn. So it's interesting that, you know, here you are, this, you know, medical physician, which is rare, you know, it's, it's getting better and more people are becoming enlightened by it. But, you know, you're this medical physician that is, you know, studied in the, the scientific discipline of medicine. And yet, you know, you're a Buddhist, you, you're a Buddhist and, um, and you're melding the two together. And I think that's beautiful because they can work together. It's just sometimes we, I think, tend to overanalyze things and, um, you know, it, it, we sometimes we just want the proof that the, it, that the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Yeah. I, think I think both both um, approaches to life have have value as long as you, you know, the challenge is that we are all so biased to believe things we want to believe, and to actually prove that something really works is so much harder than most people realize. Mm-hmm. And and so especially as a physician or a nurse, when people who are are really ill often are coming to us for advice, I feel a really powerful sense of responsibility to make sure, first, that I do no harm, mm-hmm. and then second, that if I'm going to suggest intervention, then I have as much uh, data or science behind proving that it actually um, can work, mm-hmm. that I, I'm, I'm not just sort of shooting from the hip. What's interesting is that you know, the history of using what's called evidence-based medicine to guide treatments is unbelievably recent. People don't realize in the last 50 years or so, you can even argue 40 years, has it actually come come to fruition where when, you know, things that we do, we do because studies suggest they actually work. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a very interesting phenomenon of what we call medical reversals where things that we've done in medicine for decades, we finally are able to study and discover that what we thought was doing, you know, such great help was actually causing harm. I'm thinking of one issue in particular giving... Um, hormone replacement therapy to women after menopause. We, oh. we thought for years, that decades literally, that we were decreasing the risk of heart attacks uh, with a mild increase in the risk of breast cancer. And it turns out when we did a properly designed study, we were absolutely wrong. Yeah. So, you know, when, when even in, in the field of medicine, things that are done by, you know, scientific thinkers end up being wrong when actually studied, you just got to get really careful about what you allow yourself to believe. On the other hand, you can't have every choice in life guided by something that's been proven. It's, you, you, you'd never do anything. <laughs> so, you know, you just have to, I think the, the, the way to approach it is sort of with a skeptical mind to constantly question your own biases, your own desire for things to be true, and then um, uh, to, to use your intuition um, that hopefully you have trained and that has been honed by, you know, rigorous scientific thinking and and, uh, and also recognizing there are sometimes you have to make choices where studies aren't available and you don't know. And and then it's okay. Make a choice uh, and, and go with it, but recognize that the confidence with which you can do it is going to be somewhat limited. That's sort of how I think about it. So it turns out there's a lot in Buddhist thinking and even in Buddhist practice that um, over, the, over the centuries has been shown empirically at least by people doing it, like you say, the proof is in the pudding, to be valuable. Uh, that hasn't necessarily been, you know, subjected to randomized controlled studies, but that um, are harmless, we think, and yet can, you know, people really will exhibit, you know, discuss benefit, and I think those things you should, you should be open to and try. Yeah, I I like that. I, I like what you said there. It, it, I don't have anything to add. It really does sum up the way I think, too. You know, I have seen or experienced what you said with regards to, you know, incorporating things that are more holistic for my my patients or clients or people that I'm working with. And, um, of course, going through all the scientific stuff first and then adding, you know, here, try this. This may work for you. And it's amazing how when people are receptive to things, um, the receptivity level. Well, let me let me back up a little bit. When people are receptive to things and are willing to try things, it you know it 
can have a more profound enhancement to their life. However, when people are skeptical, that skeptical ability um, kind of puts like a block on it. So they may try it, but because they're skeptical and they're not really believing or having faith in it, it doesn't work for them as well as someone that just says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try what you say and I'm going to believe it because I believe in you or I believe in the process or I believe in what you're telling me or, you know, the, the information you're disseminating upon me. So it, it's amazing to see how that manifests in, you know, the various people that we, we deal with. Now, I know a part, you have a section in your book and um, it's I think it's the meaning of victory. And can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So in Buddhism, the, the principle that is held in the esteem above all others is um, that life is win or lose. Um, by that, it means that what, the, what that phrase means is that really what, what you want in life is a series of victories. So you, you, life is viewed as a battle in Buddhism. You're battling against your own weaknesses. You're battling against obstacles that are thrown in your path. You're battling against adversity that lands on you. How do you win? And what does winning mean? Well, it, it really in Buddhism, winning means essentially freeing yourself from suffering. Mostly people think that you, in order to win over something, it means you get what you want. You, you get the, not, you know, not just overcome an obstacle, but overcome it in a way you want. So, uh, not just, uh, you know, recover from, say, being paralyzed, uh, or not just, you know, get through being paralyzed, but actually walk again. Mm-hmm. Thing. And so, I guess the, a couple of points are, Victory really is achieved when you feel you've achieved victory. And, and you, you often need to be open to victory being something that you did not expect or want. So, uh, you know, it may be that if you were paralyzed in a wheelchair, you, you end up not walking again. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean you lost because there is always the possibility that, that you will begin to understand your condition uh, in a different way and stop suffering from it and even begin to create value out of it. And in fact, when you look at studies of people who've lost um, function, lost people uh, who they love in their lives, mm-hmm. most of the time, uh, over time, they return to sort of their previous set point of happiness, whether they do anything about it or not. Uh, and so really victory in Buddhism is about overcoming suffering, which may or may not mean overcoming adverse circumstances exactly in the way you want. And often we're surprised about how we overcome circumstances. In Buddhism, there's also this concept, it's related, uh, called turning poison into medicine. Mm-hmm. The basic idea is that there is no circumstance, no uh, consequence that we cannot in some way create value out of. Even the most horrible losses you can imagine, uh, studies suggest that benefit can be gained. doesn't mean that benefit outweighs the, the loss you've suffered, but that there is value to be created. And, and there are innumerable number of anecdotal examples of this, and, and we could talk about some of them, but um, the idea basically is that there is something within our lives, some engine, that when we apply it to a problem, we can turn poison into medicine. And, and often, I have found, in ways that we never anticipated in the beginning, which mm-hmm. makes it hard, because if you, could, if you could see exactly what you had to benefit out of, out of adversity from the day the adversity struck you, going through that adversity would be much easier. Right. You'd say, "Oh, I'm gonna. I have to suffer this horrible experience, but in the end, I'm gonna get this incredible reward." If you knew that from the beginning, getting through it would be a very different experience. And so, the Buddhist philosophy suggests that whether you know it or not, if you if you aim at that benefit, even without knowing what it is, that you have the capacity to to achieve it. Oh, I like that. See, so you guys, you hear what he's saying? If you aim at the benefit and you go through the process. There may be a little space, there may be a little bit of suffering, but it's part of the journey. And at the end of the journey, you get, I want to say, the pot of gold or this huge enlightenment that um, when you look back over everything, it's going to, you're going to say, that was well worth it. I would do it again. And, and I like that because really at the end of that journey is the victory. And you, you put that so eloquently uh, together for us. And, and it makes complete sense as to why wisdom can bring it into suffering it's just um it's just fabulous i'm just like beaming with Woo, oh! <laughs> which is a you know it, it, that's a that's a fabulous thing for me so um and i'm sure my listeners are too so now i know that you know people 
you, me, everyone we come in contact with, they go through life and they're, you know, trying to find their mission. Or sometimes we don't even know. I know prior to me hitting my 40s, you know, I just, um, you know, went through life and just did things that I wanted to do and thought that was what I was supposed to do and it fell in line, you know, and all that. And I just thought that was, you know, that was, you just go through life and that's just what, how life is. But then, you know, I was enlightened and uh, understand that, you know, everyone on this planet is here for a purpose and we all have a mission. I wish we could find out what our mission was in our 20s because that would make things a whole lot easier. But I, I guess it's not supposed to be that way. You're supposed to go through the, you know, walk down your path and discover things. But in a point, in a part of your book, you have a section on finding your mission. Um can you tell us a little bit about that with regards to identifying a personal mission? How can people how how can that help people um on their journey in our life on our life here on earth? So we are inherently meaning seeking creatures. It seems to be uh programmed into us by evolution. And um the idea that we each have a mission uh you know in our lives to fulfill uh, people often talk about this as if it were assigned to them by some outside force, by fate or by God, if God exists. And, and um, you know, my perspective is that, and the Buddhist perspective is that, your mission is something you yourself determine. And and yet finding, you know, your life's purpose is not necessarily the easiest thing, especially, you know, young people as they're getting out of high school and out of college trying to figure out what are they going to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. I argue in the book that the question you know, what are you going to do with your life is the wrong question. And that really what you should be asking yourself is what value do you want to create with your life? What contribution do you want to make? So I guess, you know, people, there's been great studies showing that people who have a sense of purpose, who live daily with that, you know, sense of mission uh, are happier and that when you feel that you're doing something meaningful, it absolutely elevates your mood. I'm arguing in the book, while that's true, um, that there's a second benefit to having a, a mission, to being armed with a mission you can articulate to yourself in a sentence or two, and that is it makes you strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I, the example I give um, is a recent example. My wife actually just recently went and climbed Mount Rainier. And Mount Rainier is, uh, it's, for those of you who are not mountain climbers like myself, uh, is, <laughs> yeah, it's major. It's known as the gateway to the Himalayas. It's one of the hardest, most ethical climbs in North America. Oh, and, and my wife is just one of these really intense people who loves to challenge herself physically, and so she uh, trained for this for six months, <clears throat> and the way she did this was by she would get on a stair stepper machine with a 50-pound weight vest, and she would do intervals. So she'd be going at a reasonably moderate pace, and then for two minutes, you know, jack it up to about as intense as she could possibly withstand for two minutes, and then jack back down. Oh. Well, she described to me the actual climb as being uh, done at that high level she did for two minutes. It could only withstand for two minutes on the stair stepper uh-huh. for two to two and a half hours at a time. So she she said this was literally the hardest thing she'd ever done in her life, and there were many, many points along the way where she wanted to quit, and she really was going to quit. In fact, half of her group turned back. She did not. She made it to the summit, and the reason is because at that moment when she had finally said to herself, I'm going, I can't do this, I'm going to turn around, a thought came into her head, and that thought was her brother was with her. She had actually convinced her brother to come and climb this mountain with her, and she thought, I cannot let him down. Right. I can't do it. And so that was the why that at the moment she wanted to quit, at the moment she was most discouraged and think she, thought she could not withstand another bit of pain, it kept her going. She found more strength because of that why. And so I argue that um, if you can find the ultimate why of your life, why do you get out of bed, what's the most basic reason, that you know, what's the most, most important value for you to contribute um, on, you know, to other people on the planet that you can think of? If, if for example, you were to imagine yourself um, at the age of 90, being given a medal by the President of the United States on a national stage, what would you want to be recognized for? What did you want the President and everyone in the world to know you spent your life doing? If you can find that and you can articulate that to yourself and then connect it to what you do on a daily basis, it can make you invincible. And, and that works in my life. And my, my mission that I articulate to myself is to help other people uh, be relieved of suffering. And there are many things I do during my day or days I have where I am discouraged and not interested in what I'm doing and and really struggling. And then when I finally come back around to remembering why I am here doing what I'm doing, I am transformed. Oh, yeah, I'm here to help people suffer less. 
And then it's, it's actually not very hard for me to take that sense of mission and apply it to most things I do in my day. And suddenly those things, which were maybe even annoying to me, are now charged with meaning, and I am able to do them and even withstand the obstacles that come up as a result of the activities that I do, taking care of patients, that kind of thing, and get through them so much more easily. They, they seem small to me when I, when I am fully aware and, and remembering my mission. So I talk in the book about how you find that and what mm-hmm. you what you do. And my point is that actually uh, you need to, you know, our, our conscious minds are often wrong about why we feel what we feel. Mm-hmm. And so it's an exercise of a matter of sort of going on a, um, a digging mission within your own life, in your own mind, to figure out what type of value creation feels the most important to you. And then, and then you know, figuring out um, how to articulate a value a mission statement that you then sort of would go go forth moving forward from and, and then figure out, well, from that, well, what types of jobs could I do to fulfill this mission? And often there's many, many more jobs than just one that will right. do that. It's, it, it makes you flexible. But So the, actually, the exact way about how I suggest to do that is sort of um, detailed in the book there, but that's my thinking about it. I like that. I mean, you, as you were speaking, I'm, I felt like I was back in college, you know, in lecture halls. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because you know you said some, you you touched on some points that I'm sure everybody can relate to. You know, it's particularly I hate to be selfish and put it all about me, but at this moment it is. I uh, I like how you said, and it brings me clarity, and that's why I think I'm gonna say this to help others if they're if you try, they're trying to figure out where I'm going with this. But I like how you said, think about when you're 90 and you're getting the medal of, you know, congressional honor from the president, what would you want to get that from, for? And then, you know, take that back and, you know, and, and ask yourself these questions. And then you, you eventually come up to what your purpose is. And as we go through our days and we have challenges and, you know, oh my gosh, you get so tired of, I can't stand this job, or I can't stand dealing these, with these people, or these, you know, patients get on my nerves, or whatever the you know case may be. And then you go back and you ask yourself the question: Okay, what is my mission? My mission is, like you said, your mission is to help people suffer less. And when you are able to connect back into just that statement, um, you know, I feel that you get this like resurgence of re-energize, revigor, like you almost recharge with with the essence of what you're really here for and all that other stuff, all that small stuff that sometimes can pile up and become a big pile and it seems really important to us. When you connect back with that purpose or your mission, like you said, all that, that garbage just seems to blow away or burn up, so to speak, and it doesn't exist anymore and you are revitalized and recharged and rejuvenated to go on with your sense and your purpose. And I think that is phenomenal. I mean, at least for me, from this point forward, when I have those moments in my day, when I'm just like, oh, God, you know, what the heck? Why am I doing this again? I'm going to remember what you said and connect back to my purpose. And I know immediately it will it will have a transformation on me at that point in time. It's just I, that, in essence, is worth the whole time that I'm going to be talking to you. Cause I think, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you think so. I just think that's so profound. And then I also like what you said with regards to your wife and her. First of all, I have to give her uh, an applause for doing that because she's a kick butt type of gal to do that. But, you know, even on her journey to, you know, conquering her goal of climbing Mount Rainier and her training and all that, even though that she felt that was her purpose, she, in the midst of going down that path, felt that there was times that she wanted to quit. But because she had incorporated, you know, her brother who, you know, you, when you incorporate someone or you invite someone to do something with you that you know is going to be extremely challenging, you almost, it's like me too, I almost have this responsibility as I, I can't let them down. They're doing this because I asked them to do it. And if I give up, what, what you know, what kind of example are, am I setting for them? You know, and so you just push through. You just push through. And the reward at the end of each time you push through when you want to quit, each time you push through, the rewards seem to be greater and greater and greater. And it's just amazing. It's like you have to suffer a little bit to get to that pot of gold. And, um, I, I, and I should point out, I'm sorry. 
No, go ahead. Yeah. I should point out that she was surprised that that was the ultimate reason she found to keep going. It was not what she expected. And I think that the, the, the important lesson there is that the thing we find the most important to do is not necessarily what we think it is or even what we want it to be. And so that's what I meant by sort of doing a digging, uh, an excavation of your own uh, feelings because that, that really, she didn't anticipate that. You know, there were, you know, you'd think the reason she was doing this is she wanted to test herself and find out how strong she was. And her thought when she got these points where she wanted to quit was, oh, I'm not that strong. This is it. This is how strong I am. I'm going to stop now. And there was this thought about a brother, and it, it took her by surprise. But that was the most meaningful, motivating reason why she was there. So as people struggle to find their life's purpose, um, uh, the idea is you're not deciding what you think it should be. You're deciding actually what it already is. You just haven't figured it out yet. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I, I just, as you're saying that, I've seen, like, the, you know, in Eastern, in the Eastern way of the world, the way they think, you know, that every, they have the lotus flower that they refer to because the lotus flower is, like, has all these, you know, unending aspects to it, so to speak. And so as you were saying that, I see this closed bud of the lotus flower just opening it up so vibrantly and beautifully as you're saying that and encompassing all the essence of what you're saying. And it's just beaming and beautiful and bright and just glowing in the sunlight. And, and that's true. That's how we are. I think that's a reflection or a great representative of of how we are and, and how we go through life. And, you know, it's not always meant to be easy, but um, definitely there are rewards, during, you know, when you get through the challenges and the suffering and the struggles, there are definite rewards to that. And, and you just, you're just beautiful. I love you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. So now I know you have a section that you talk about, um, you, you know, making a vow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So... By making a vow, what I am talking about there is the concept of uh, resolve and determination. And uh, Buddhism places a lot of stock in the power of determination. And in fact, we'll talk about how all things that we achieve are the function of our determination. And so how do you, when obstacles arise and you are discouraged, um, maintain your determination and refuse to give up? And what do you know, what, what, what can you do to do that? And the first issue really is, or the first principle really is to recognize that it all comes down to your determination, that, you know, we give up. Often we think we, we give up because we can't do something. But learning to ignore those voices in our minds, those negative voices that tell us when something is impossible, uh, is part of maintaining one's resolve and determination. And, and just becoming conscious of the power of one's own resolve and recognizing that, in fact, though we can't exactly find the end of it, um, sorry, that it may it may not be infinite. We may not have an infinite amount of determination, but we do have an indefinite amount, meaning when we, we look for the end of our determination, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to find. It's like my wife who thought she had given, she was, you know, I, she couldn't go another step. Her resolve was done. And then this thought, her brother was there, and she realized if I stop now, I'm letting him down, and suddenly there she had more resolve, and right. she, she went on. So a lot of it is how one manages the negative thoughts that we all have, um, and our and our uh, insecurities and our, our our disbelief in our ability to accomplish what we want to accomplish, so that you can actually maintain your resolve and, and learning how to draw on it in a way that actually works in a very pragmatic way to keep you going. Oh, that's that's again just you know words of wisdom, listeners. I hope you are enjoying the conversation because Dr. Lickerman has just given us a tremendous amount of wisdom in the context of what he's saying and. Uh, because he's delivering it in such a beautiful and loving way, the vibrations that I'm getting from him is just, um, you know, beaming. I can feel a whole bunch of light energy around me just by the words he's saying and the wisdom he's disseminating upon us. And it's simple stuff. It seems real, you know, it, it's it's simple. It's not complex. It's just things that we need to do and adapt to to make our life so much better and really to help us decrease the stress and, and be really resilient. Because I think when you are resilient, you're a lot more able to handle the stresses in your life a lot better because you know that's just part of your journey. And you don't 
grab onto them and hold hold on to them and make them, you know, a little molehill into a big mountain. It doesn't need to be that way. You can you you have these tools that we bring to you every week and this information is really, really profoundly beneficial to you. So I hope you guys are taking good notes or, you know, Ken, you can always re listen to um us uh in what Dr. Lickerman is is saying and saying to us. Now, you know, um Dr. Lickerman People may say that, you know, listening or whatever, they may say in the world that, you know, this this is great for YouTube because you guys believe this. You're already on the, the you know, the page of this way of thinking. How do we help people that are kind of straddling in line with with the idea of incorporating what you're saying into their life, but they're just not sure. Sure, they're just not, you know. How, I guess how do we how do we help these people help themselves by utilizing the information that you're giving to them? So you have to find people at the right moment, and and by that I mean uh, when things are going wrong for them, and they and they don't know what to do. They feel stopped, blocked, mm-hmm. stymied. Um, that's when when people are suffering is when they will often open their minds to trying things that they might have otherwise been afraid to try mm-hmm. or scoffed to trying. Um, and recognize that the things I write about in this book uh, do not require anyone to believe anything. They're, they're really very specific techniques or alternative ways of thinking about things that you can just try and see if they work for you. I don't expect that everyone is going to be interested in and want to try and find value out of every suggestion and everything I put in this book. But there's there's something in there for everybody, depending upon your situation. And um, honestly, the stuff I put in there really, in my view, should be sort of taught to our children from, you know, as a standard part of the curriculum in our high schools because based on a lot of research, uh, there really are uh, ways to go about dealing with adversity that will get you stuck and ways of dealing with adversity that will get you beyond it. And and there's great scientific studies behind that, that not that that applies to everyone, um, but basically, you know, I find I'm most effective in helping people change the way they approach things when they're in the middle of uh, something they don't know how to deal with. And, you know, the typical response to that is they, they have a certain number of solutions in their mind that they're willing and able to try, A, B, and C. And they mm-hmm. try A, and A doesn't work. And so they move to B, B doesn't work either, and then they move to C, and C doesn't work, and they say, well, I just can't think of anything else to do, so what do they do? They go back to A, mm-hmm. they have nothing else to do, or they just sit there and, and are stuck and learn helplessness and do nothing. And, you know, Albert Einstein said that, you know, what's the definition of, of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? I don't agree with that. I actually think that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different, different results is uh, the definition of cowardice. Because we have these, we have these three ideas, these three solutions we are willing to apply to a problem. Mm-hmm. And when they don't work, we go back to trying them over and over again. But you know, if you think there's only three solutions to any problem, you haven't thought about it <laughs> enough. And usually, what stops us from thinking about those solutions, and it's not even that we come up with other solutions necessarily and then reject them, although that certainly happens. But sometimes our minds are so afraid of certain solutions or so unwilling to risk what those solutions require us to risk that we don't even consciously think about them. But invariably, um, you know, overcoming a problem that you, that you don't know how to overcome often means doing something you're not comfortable doing. Right. And, we're, we're, and when we're not comfortable doing something, we try not to do it. And, and so um, for me, that comes down to lack of courage. So, but, you know, that's not what I say to people. I, I sort of, um, <laughs> you have to, you, that doesn't work. You have to sort of, sort of help them come to these conclusions themselves. So I ask a lot of questions and I, you know, and you prompt people with provocative questions that sort of force them to examine the fact that they're only allowing themselves to think of three solutions or try three solutions. And you say, well, right. what about this other solution? Well, no, I can't do that. That's impossible. Then I have to do X, Y, and Z. And like, well, so what if you did that? Right. And, and getting, you know, and so it's really, you know, how, people are willing to try things that they themselves think they have thought of. And so even if it's something you're handing to them, if you help them to reason through it themselves so that they can own the idea, the mm-hmm. solution you're proposing, mm-hmm. you're much more likely to be open to it and giving it a try. Hmm. That is very true. That is very, very true. I like um, how you, you took what Albert Einstein said and gave it kind of a new context and 
you know, what it means. Because it's like, I thought about that. And I'm like, that actually, I like what you said. Because in, in essence, you know, they do the same thing over and over expecting a different result. But I think sometimes it's because they're, they're feel, fearful of the change that they may need to incorporate because it's unknown to them. And what if that change actually works and they achieve whatever it is that they've been doing over and over and they haven't been able to achieve? And so if you're afraid, sometimes that is a form of cowardice because you're just, you, you, you just don't, you just don't want to venture out of the, scope of your comfortability. So some people are quite comfortable doing things over and over again and not having them work and then, you know, falling into the, oh, poor pity me syndrome. Um, and then there are other people that are like, this isn't working. I've done this 20 years the same way and it's not working. I need, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I'm suffering and I need to make a change. What can you help me with? Or what do you see that I don't see? What's at the tip of my nose that you see that I can't see, but I've been, you know, have wearing this whatever it is on the tip of my nose for 20 years. So I think that's really um, awakening, an awakening form or awakening thought to bring people to the context of, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Recognize that and uh, and go forth. It's the only way you'll be able to know if what you're doing is right or wrong. So um, very, very nice. Now, you know, when I was a little kid, no one ever told me, and I'm sure this happened to you too, you know, when you were a little kid and had dreams of being a physician, no one ever told you about the journey of all the things that you're going to have to experience down that path to becoming a physician, including the good, the bad, the ugly, and the obstacles. <laughs> and so, you know, obstacles sometimes have a way of deterring people from completing their tasks. How does making use of this obstacle or these adversities um how can we make use of them so that we can propel forward? Uh, so I'm smiling. <laughs> oh, good, yay! Because, <laughs> yes, Rochelle! <laughs> because, of course, um, you know, as I, <laughs> that's how I opened the book about uh, a way I failed spectacularly in, in, in the early part of my medical career. I failed uh, part one of the national boards, which you take as a second-year medical student, or you did oh, back yeah. when I was a medical student, because... I had just broken up with the first love of my life, and I was just devastated and clinically depressed, though at the time I didn't know it. So my ability to concentrate was just gone, and I, I failed the test. So I thought my, my career was over before it had begun. Um, you know, I, the issue is th there we cannot control how hard things are to do. If we want to become a doctor, we want to write a book, we want to whatever it is we want to do, you're not in control of how hard it's going to be, and it's going to be harder for some than easier for others. You're not in control of that either. But what you are in control of is how hard you expect things to be. And that's a lever that, while subtle, is incredibly powerful if you pull it in the right way. So, for example, studies have suggested that when you expect a task to be easy, and in fact you fail at it, you are subsequently much more likely to, um, to perform poorly in other tasks and then quit mm. than if you expect that first task to be hard and fail it. If you expect the first task to be hard and fail it, it turns out it has very little impact on your willingness and ability to continue on. But if you expect it to be easy and fail, you're, you're much more likely to quit subsequently. So it, it really is about managing our expectations, not so much about, you know, what the experience is going to be like, but how hard it's going to be to achieve a goal. And so what I tell people to do, and the way I counsel them this way is, you really, if you're, if you're setting on a journey to accomplish something really uh, immense, that may be your word you can't. Talk to people who've done it, people who are as much like you as you can find. And don't ask them how, you know, was it hard for you? What, you know, the way people usually have these conversations is just sort of to learn about what the experience is like. That's fine. But your real goal is to actually go on a mapping expedition to figure out what you should expect your process to be like. Are there goals you can anticipate? Is, is, the, is the timeline what you were thinking it would be? You know, how many of us, I see this every day in, in so many ways that people have an expectation of how long something should take, whether it's waiting to be seen in a doctor's office oh, or how long a viral infection should last. And when your expectations are, ex are exceeded, that's when people get upset. You know, if I think I should wait only 15 minutes to see my doctor, I'm fine until minute 14. And then, <laughs> and then you know, one minute later, I'm like, what's going on? Well, the only thing that's changed yeah. is my expectation was, was missed. Right. You know, or people who come in saying, you know, I got sick. And I thought, ah, it's just a virus, not a big deal. It should be good on a couple of days. It's lasted seven days. Something's wrong. 
Well, all that happened is your expectation was incorrect, but, but look at how powerfully that influences how you feel and react and what you do. So, so you take this together and so you interview people and you talk to them and say, what was it like for you? What didn't you expect? How long did it take you? And you ask a lot of those people to sort of get a general idea. And what often you'll discover is you, you get a picture painted for you that's very different from what you expected it would be. And now you're armed with a realistic expectation, and therefore you are armed with the ability to withstand disappointment far better than you would have been otherwise. Because now instead of expecting it to take six months to renovate your kitchen, you know, on average, these things take a year. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't expect that, you get to month seven, right. six to eight, you're like tearing your hair out. So it's an incredibly powerful lever that the goal is it's not, it doesn't make things easier, but it makes our ability to continue on through hard things better. Oh, wow. Wow. I love that. I, I, <clears throat> I like that because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's great um, disappointment and expectations. And I like how you said that, you know, for instance, I wanted when I was young, I wanted to get my um, cartilage pierced. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. the end thing. Someone told me, I asked someone, and oh, girl, that hurts. Don't do it. it. It's really painful. So lo and behold, you know, I didn't do it. Now this is so silly because I have a really really high pain tolerance. I don't know what that person's pain tolerance was, but I took that it, it was really painful and took that you know to heart. So I didn't do it and delayed it for many years. I mean, probably 15 years. And then I came across another um, gal who was a little older than me, and she had went and got her cartilage pierced. And I was like, did it hurt? And she's like, girl, no, it was a piece of cake. So based on her context of what she said, I marched my little self down there and I go get it pierced. And I'm talking to the girl while she's like prepping and, you know, I'm just running my mouth. And then she's like, okay, you're done. And I'm like, you already did it? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, it didn't hurt a bit. And she goes, yeah, you didn't, you know, you just kept talking, so you wouldn't shut up. <laughs> but the yeah. point was, I had for many years this expectation that it was going to hurt based on one person's, you know, experience with it. And it wasn't until I talked to another person who gave me complete opposite, you know, experience that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And it didn't hurt. So I delayed something that I wanted to do for many years just based on a unrealistic expectation. And so how you say to go interview people, various people, you're going to get the good, the bad, and ugly from everybody, but then you'll have a wealth of information at hand that you can utilize that fits for you. And you'll know. I, I just, I was like, oh, my gosh, I should have met him years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you also point out the, the flip side, the danger of this, which is that if, if, it's, if your realistic appraisal of how hard or painful something is going to be scares you enough, you, it might stop you from doing it. And, and that's not the goal. You know, you, you want... You want to set your expectations so that they're realistic enough to defend you against becoming discouraged, but not so far beyond what you think you can handle or you can do that you don't even start to try in the first place. So you're looking for that sweet spot. Oh, wow. And I, and you gave us the recipe on how to find that sweet spot. So I that within itself is just the gold nugget of the day. I mean, I mean you gave so many, but um, that was really profound for me because it it just brought me back to that incident and I'm like, you know, oh my gosh. Or you know, if you ask women, you know, how was childbirth? One will say, Oh, it was a piece of cake, another will say, Oh girl, I had my labor was fifty seven hours and you know all right. and that's right. really scary. And so of course we're gonna be drawn to the negative, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and your experience may be complete I mean my labor processes were completely piece of cake. But then again I have a really high pain tolerance. So if, if someone asks me, I'm going to give them a completely different story than someone else. But at least they have a you know, a variety of information available to them to that might fit their their own story, so to speak. You have to be careful of the way you interview people and, and what part of their story you're listening to mm. because, as you say, everyone has a different pain tolerance. And so it's not necessarily you're listening to uh, or asking them how hard was it for you, mm-hmm. more as, you know, hard data like how long was your labor or, um, you know, how how long did it take you to climb that mountain or mm. how many times did you think about quitting. So you, it's impossible to eliminate a person's subjective experience from the story they're telling. Right. But if you can sort of try to, you know, pin your pin your hopes on uh, or the picture you're painting on objective data and recognizing that everyone has a subjective experience and that's the value of asking many, many people and then deciding, where do I want to set my expectation? You know, so if someone, you know, we talked to one friend who had a baby said, oh, it was nothing. 
uh, and then you set your expectation that you know you're going to be done in 10 hours and it won't be that bad, uh, <laughs> you won't be as prepared as if you talk to someone else who says, I, "It was a 30-hour labor. I was in agony the whole time." And so then somewhere in there, even you know, just because you get a picture of the worst possible scenario, that doesn't mean you have to set your expectations there. Right. But you should factor in that scenario when you set your expectations. I love that. Wow, that's that's just. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I, oh gosh, I could talk to you forever. Um, I want to know, or I'm sure this is um, an issue for everybody, and I know you cover it in your book with regards to the uncertainty of anxiety. Can you give a little bit? Can you touch upon that a little bit? Because you know, anxiety and the unpro- unforeseen worries that we have you know, can create stories and dramas in our mind that may never, ever manifest, but it will will stop people from moving forward. So can you just touch a little bit on um, the uncertainty of anxiety? So people, a lot of the behavior that we find ourselves um, going through uh, is basically designed to help us avoid feeling anxious. Anxiety is one of the main drivers of, of our behavior. And uncertainty is is probably the number one thing that creates anxiety in us. Uh, there was a really interesting study that I, I wrote about in the book um, where they looked at patients who had had colostomies done. Mm-hmm. Nurse, you know what a colostomy is. But basically a colostomy is where, for whatever reason, a surgeon has to reroute the passage of stool from the rectum out to a hole in the stomach, which is collected by a bag. So, for example, if you have to have, if you have colon cancer and have to have part of your colon resected, then you can't, you can't have a stool passing out um, your, your rectum anymore, so you have to have a bag. There are some conditions, however, for which those bags are temporary and that you, the surgeons will sometimes go back in in a second operation and take the colostomy down and, and reattach things so that you're, you're, um, you're having stool in the normal way. And when they looked at uh, a group of people who had colostomies, half of whom the colostomies were permanent and half of whom colostomies were, were possibly permanent but might at some point be able to be reversed, what they found when they followed them up six months after their operation was exactly the opposite of what they expected. The people who had the permanent colostomies were far happier than the people who actually had the potentially permanent colostomies. Oh. And then the reason they thought this was is because the people who were told, you're, you're done, this is we're never taking this down, they were able to get on with the business of getting used to it and adapting to it, which is what they did. But the people who were told, we might be able to take this down, we might not. We don't know. Mm. Uh, that uncertainty prevented them from adapting to this change and, and kept them far more anxious about it than the people who sort of said, oh, this is my life now and I have to sort of get on the, the business of accepting it. Mm-hmm. So we often find uh, ourselves becoming extremely anxious in circumstances where we don't know what to expect because, of course, our imaginations work over time and we uh, you know, easily imagine the worst depending upon our our disposition, and interestingly for many of us, to imagine something is to begin to believe it. And so our thoughts really can serve us poorly when we allow them to instill a belief that is unjustified that causes fear. And so managing anxiety, um, I talk about it in the last chapter of the book, um, is, is an enormous part of, of maintaining resilience. Oh, I like that. Um, I, I, I like that. Um, first of all, I want to thank you because you you did something that I normally do is you explain explained the medical terminology um and I like that so thank you very much for that because I like how you explain what a colostomy you know is for for the listeners out there that didn't know that or may not even have any clue that that's that's what happens to people um so thank you so much for that I appreciate that um and and the fact that you just, you know, presented this information and you gave a scenario. I could totally, I could totally see that. I mean, I can totally see how the uncertainty of if I'm going to have to wear this bag, you know, forever or they're going to be able to repair, you know, you know, go in there and surgically repair whatever is wrong and get me back, you know, where I'm having, you know, bowel movements the normal way, you know, can leave a person feeling in the nethers, so to speak, you know, and, and you, and they just can't sit. They can't, they can't get sick, you know, they can't, it doesn't sit comfortably with them because they don't know, they don't know what to expect. Whereas a person that has the colostomy and they know that's just going to be part of their life and their friend for the rest of their life, go on and have a much better life because they're able to accept it. There's no uncertainty about anything. And that and that's a beautiful explanation or visualization for people to, to grasp because um, it's all about the unknowing that causes, you know, that causes that anxiety and that uncertainty in us and and I guess when you have the knowing or you can tap into that knowing then that really does release and and 
let go, you're able to let go of that, that uncertainty that leads to the anxiety. And so that is just fabulous. Now, we, we have just a tiny bit of time and I want to touch on, cause I love this. I, man, I could talk to you for at least another two hours. Um, the meaning of karma. Can you tell us about, I know what it is, you know, I know how it works and, but can you tell us the meaning of karma and, you know, how that circulates in our life in like maybe one and a half minutes? One and a half minutes. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. So the traditional view of karma is that everything we think, everything we say and everything we do in some way are engraved as causes somewhere in our lives that at some point in the future will have manifest effects. So in a real simple way is if you yell at somebody today and make them feel badly in the future, that becomes an effect of that person, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, doing something nasty to you. Mm-hmm. But in Buddhism, it's thought of as an even a deeper concept that uh, we really have sort of what's called a karma bank, where we engrave these causes and then in the future, uh, they add up to really positive effects uh, or really negative effects. And so we explain the fact that we came down with cancer by causes we've made in the past. Now, a lot of people have a problem with this because they immediately leap to the notion that that means we we deserve the thing, the bad things that happen to us, sort of mm-hmm. blaming the victim type of thing. But mm-hmm. in Buddhism, that's not the concept. It's not that we deserve bad things to happen to us. It's simply that we are responsible for them happening to us. You know, the same way if someone were to get on a train that went from Chicago to New York thinking they were bound, uh, on a train going from Chicago to Chicago to Los Angeles, but arrive in New York and be surprised. Well, they didn't deserve to arrive in New York, but they are responsible, whether they knew it or not, for arriving right. in, in New York. Now, I don't actually, I'll confess, I don't believe that. I, I haven't seen evidence that, that that law of karma actually exists, but I will tell you that what I take from that, and, and the Buddhist view of this, ultimately is um, if we are suffering, whether or not we contributed and are responsible for that suffering doesn't matter. If we're suffering, it's our responsibility to solve that problem to stop ourselves from suffering. We can't expect anyone else to take responsibility for that. And so it, it primarily, for me, the concept of karma puts us in the driver's seat. However our lives are and however we are experiencing them, that's our responsibility. And if we want to experience them differently, we have to do something to experience them differently. Oh, beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I, like I said, I'm giving you an applause because that's a great, great thing. And it's a great last thing that... Um, I'm going to leave the listeners with um, just be in the driver's seat. If you're experiencing things, just know you're in the driver's seat and you have the responsibility to to make those changes in your life. Um, This is just absolutely beautiful. So, you guys, I hate to do this to you, but we have come to the end of the show. I want to sincerely thank Dr. Lickerman for his vast amount of information that he gave to us. He is absolutely fabulous. Um, I'm going to put you in my little fabulous tribe. I don't do that with many people, but and, and it's not just because you're a doctor and I'm a nurse. <laughs> but okay. you were just fabulous. I I just um, my heart is beaming. My my mind is just full of. I like I said, I could talk to you for forever. But I know you're a very busy um, gentlemen, and I really thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with me and to get this information to the listeners. Now, how can they get your book? So my book is available in Barnes & Noble across the country um, and from Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble uh, websites as well. Okay, you guys, so go out there, pick up Dr. Alex Lickerman's book, the undefeated mind, I guarantee that if you, if any of what he said to you or said to us during this conversation today resonated with you, if you had bells and whistles going off in your head or in your heart or in your gut or you had those aha moments, you really need to go get his book because it really, really, really is for you and the information in there is really, really, really going to help you. And that's the best way I can describe it. So please go out and get Dr. Lickerman's book. Again, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Nobles online, and at the Barnes & Nobles store. And they can also, I know, at Barnes & Nobles order it for you if they don't carry it in the store. Um, thank you again, Dr. Lickerman. It was a fabulous, fabulous time to chat with you. Um, thank you so much. And I'm just going to close. I would just like to say thank you for listening to Blissful Living. I enjoyed sharing Dr. Alex Lickerman with you today and what he had 
to chat with us about. And of course, you know, I'm always here wishing you peace to your mind, wellness to your body, and tranquility to your spirit. I am Rochelle Lawson, and you have been listening to Blissful Living. Have a wonderful day, and I look forward to seeing you all or hearing you all or having you all on this show listening next week. Take care, everyone, and bye for now. You can find out more about Rochelle on her website, Rochelle Lawson, R-O-C-H-E-L-E, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, or at healthhealingwellness.com. Or just click on her websites from the webtalkradio.net page right in front of you. And, of course, you'll want to come right back here next week for another episode of Blissful Living. Thanks for joining us.